0: If you can't openly criticize the Chinese government, there's been reports about playing Les Miserables, like themes of the of the working people who are kept down by the elite. And so this to me is another example that this model is not stable and it doesn't do better for its people.
1: It is the week of February 10th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have some of our usual suspects, Dana Struhl former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and new this week, joining us for the first time, Andy Kaiser, a fellow at the National Security Institute and a former senior advisor to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, or HIPCIE. Correct. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Uh, so this week we're going to be discussing the novel coronavirus, which originated in Wuhan, China, late last year and has now claimed over 900 lives, infected over 40,000 people, and is present in over 26 countries. It is larger than the 2003 SARS epidemic and may approach the known death toll of 11,315 from the – th- 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Entire cities have effectively been quarantined in China with 50 million people or more confined to their homes except for an occasional vis- visit to the grocery store I believe it was described this weekend as the largest quarantine in human history. Uh, so Jody, let's go to you first what is this crisis is having a huge impact on the economy on supply chains on international travel, why do we care about this? What's, the, what's going on in the real world because of this virus?
2: Right. So I think it's actually really hard for us to completely contemplate right now the extent of the likely economic impacts uh, of the coronavirus. And I don't mean just in China. It's certainly true in China at the local uh, and national level. But this has real implications internationally uh, as well. Our economies internationally are intertwined. And of course, the U.S. economy is intertwined uh, with the Chinese market. China is the biggest market for US brands outside of the United States itself. So as of today, People are supposed to be going back to work today in China. It's unclear whether or not that will happen. So businesses are asking these questions. You know, are the factories going to open? If they do open, are workers going to show up? And even if they open and they show up, it's not clear that they're going to have materials available to operate with. So that supply chain issue, of course, affects their manufacturing, but affects everything down the road from manufacturing as well, including what inputs go into goods that they're making and what – and inputs and goods are being sold to other markets like the United States that rely on those products for their their businesses to be able to operate. We're talking about a potentially real drop-off in China's growth this year, uh, maybe as much as a 2% drop, putting them maybe someplace around 6% growth rate, which will be the lowest growth rate they've had since 1990.
1: Andy, what's uh, what's your sense of how this is going to impact China? They're already kind of reeling on the economic side. They've just been through a long trade war, of sorts, with the United States that seemed to be mostly resolved when the when the virus hit. Uh, they've got challenges in Hong Kong with democracy protesters. There's the re- the Chinese repression that's going on in Xinjiang province, which is only going to get more and more attention from the rest of the world. How is how is this the virus crisis? impacting china's position in the world economically and otherwise
3: so i think that's right last i think this is their their sort of third uh hit in a row um as you laid out with with shenzhen and um of course the how they responded to hong kong And it's primarily the the response right so it was kind of hiding the football there for a while um at least for for three weeks when they initially reported uh or started seeing uh hospitalizations with um you know, with a pneumonia uh what they thought was a pneumonia situation and then reporting that some three weeks later initially to the World Health Organization, denying that it was uh, able to be transmitted uh among humans for I think an additional three weeks beyond that. So I think the response uh lends, you know starts to raise the question um and, and draw the concern of of the rest of the world. Uh, couple that with with how they're handling these other macro issues, and I think you have you have a real question. And what I'm looking for is, um, will folks are starting to rethink their supply chain in doing business with China anyway? And does this serve as a catalyst? Um, certainly, uh, folks are forced to get some of their supply chain out to meet. Uh, demands and make contracts um, here as a direct response to this outbreak, but will they will they go back? Will this be a tipping point you've seen questioning of of supply chain on things like tech where um, the Huawei situation, dawa others um, have raised the question of should we be doing you know should you do manufacturing in china's is the juice worth the squeeze the access to that market is that worth Um, sort of either the bite you're going to get from the U.S. government or conversely empowering them to continue to do bad
1: things in places like Shenzhen. Dana, are we are we the tipping point here?
0: Well, I'll just let's take a step back here and talk about China and the the discussions in Washington and the United States and really globally about China's role in the world. And as they compete to be the world's largest economy, as they challenge the United States across international fora like the United Nations, as they contest U.S. influence across the world through economic initiatives, infrastructure initiatives, assistance initiatives, etc. The question is. What what does the world look like by China's rules? Are they the same rules that everybody else plays with? Can China be a responsible member of a leader of the global order? And this what's happening here with the coronavirus is just another um, indicator that that people should question China's not question China's rise, but whether or not that can be a stabilizing, trustworthy force. And so when you compare how the United States uh, deals transparently in situations like these pandemics, what the WHO, the World Health Organization does, um, because these, these are situations that affect everybody. It's different than any other kind of foreign policy challenge. Um, and so again, you have China in the spotlight and they don't appear as trustworthy. And finally, I would say this really questions that the model of, of Chinese authoritarianism. So right, the social contract for authoritarians is we keep you safe, we give you services, um, we provide you certain things. And for that, we buy your political silence. Well, they have failed in their social contract with the Chinese people and you can see now in sort of some of the the online fora where if you can't openly criticize the Chinese government, there's been reports about playing Les Miserables, the theme song of Les Miserables, right? Like themes of the of the working people who are kept down by by the elite. And so this to me is another example that this model is not stable and it doesn't do better for its people.
1: So there was the celebrated case of Lee Wenlang, the doctor who first identified the virus as something different than the normal influenza virus. And he and he talked about it on social media and he was, he was correct, of course. This was a different virus. The response was going to have to be different, but the, the Chinese authorities immediately cracked down on him. They pulled his social media statements. They made him publicly criticize himself. He just passed away a few days ago from the virus. He's now seen as a hero in china by the folks who are impacted by the virus you know in direct opposition to the government so what is that that really doesn't seem to bode well for the communist party and not to be
0: crass about it but there's a difference between silencing people who are criticizing certain actions or policies of the state and somebody who was sharing with his medical school colleagues basic information about his concerns about this new virus and how dangerous it was
3: andy Right, and I, I think it speaks to uh, this question of: their do they have a systemic problem? Right. So um, I, I uh, happened to binge watch uh, HBO's uh, Chernobyl, um, you know, late last year, and it, it the similarities are, uh, I think, worth worth mentioning. Where, um, you know, in, in a couple of the famous scenes, uh, the the, the uh, physicist says something to the effect of Chernobyl wasn't caused by a mechanical or other failure. It was a systemic failure of the state, essentially, that a whole series of lies um, told amongst themselves and then to the broader public in, in the Soviet Union had created the circumstances by which they could cover all these uh, small uh, things that added up to something very, very big. Um, and here you're seeing some of that with, um, with this case uh, the coronavirus. You, you saw it similarly with SARS, um, where the Chinese government is, 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 you know, loath to have uh, some bad PR, um, and so they'll they'll cover up for as long as they can, and then they flip the switch and did what authoritarian states only authoritarian states can do, and which is institute this massive. Uh, lockdown of of the city of, of Wuhan. Though probably worth noting, uh, five million people escaped the quarantine uh, in the days before it was put in place. So where those five million people are is, is something I'm sure they're often sure, interested jump in. jumping. jump
2: in. Right. So I think following on both of what you've had to say, China's disposition right now, where it likes to curate Messaging, particularly curate any potentially negative messaging uh, within the country, is wholly incompatible with a complex uh, situation like the coronavirus. And worse than that, it actually makes people wonder, if you're living in China, whether or not they're getting good information from the state. So what happens in a situation where you have millions of people being quarantined and they're not sure whose information to trust?
1: Okay. Let me let me pick up something that yeah. Dana was talking about earlier, the, the kind of the role of China in international organizations and as a global leader. The the Director General of the WHO of the World Health Organization, which is directly charged with helping with the response to a, a epidemic and possible pandemic like this, uh, the Director General went to Beijing in January and praised the Chinese response to the virus, very specifically and publicly. It's one of maybe two or three public appearances by President Xi Jinping was with Tedros, Dr. Tedros, the director general of the WHO. So what does, it, what does it say about the World Health Organization if the director general is going to Beijing and praising the Chinese response when it's pretty clear now that there were a lot of very serious flaws in the way China responded to this crisis? What do you think, Dana?
0: So I think this is a complicated one in the sense of from a foreign policy perspective, I can understand how if you are an international organization and your mandate is to understand the situation, get the details, get the facts, get a good picture so that you can organize and share information in the best way to save as many lives as possible, not just in China, but everywhere else, you probably don't want to go and get your hosts really angry by standing with the president of China and criticizing their their lackluster response to date. That being said, the optics are obviously horrible. And this just gives more fodder to uh, members of political parties and civil society organizations that hate international organizations and hate providing information and funding international organizations because they don 't see international organizations working for their on their behalf,
1: so what are the implications for this where clearly Beijing has fumbled the response i think I think a lot of folks are saying frankly that their response to coronavirus is better than the response to SARS. Uh, 17 years ago where they completely hid everything for, for a very long time, and it wasn't until much later in the process that everyone realized what was happening. This has been not quite as much uh, hiding of the facts and repression this time, although there's still a significant amount. They've gotten some criticism, and dis- and as you point out, WHO kind of has to walk a fine line between access and criticism. But what's it? What's the impact going to be on China's neighbors, right? China's trying to throw its weight around in the Indo-Pacific, trying to influence other nation states. Is this going to impact their ability to kind of shape the battlefield in their own backyard here?
2: Right. So I think that this current situation, uh, alongside other issues we've already mentioned, the situation in Hong Kong, for example, have brought into question China's efforts to sell market-based authoritarianism right? So they've really leaned into into this idea that you could be an authoritarian state and still have a viable market. And they've been selling that globally. They've been selling it in Europe. They've been selling it in Africa. They've been selling it in Latin America, frankly, through largely one-sided deals that benefit the Chinese more than anybody else. But there has been a narrative that that some foreign leaders have been keen to buy into, and China has had success with, I think their management of the situation in Hong Kong, not to mention global growing global criticism over their detention camps in East Turkestan, uh, really raises questions for other authoritarian leaders as to whether or not this is a viable whether or not China presents a viable model.
1: So Andy, if you're the Trump administration, if you're a policymaker in the Trump administration, how do you think about responding to this? This sounds like a real, I mean, not to, you know, put uh, too little emphasis on the loss of human lives. That's very important. The humanitarian response has got to be critical, but... In the in the long run, how does the U.S. respond to this opportunity? China's been shown to be an emperor with not a lot of clothes on. How do how does the U.S. and the and the West exploit this opportunity?
3: Yeah, I think it comes at a, a awfully opportune time for for those around the world who are concerned about uh, China's China's growing role and influence. Um, right as as China is turning the corner, largely on uh, gaining footholds in places, we we you know, not necessarily could imagine, um, including among our own allies. Um, I'll go down, down the line. You have the Huawei situation, uh, Chinese telecommunications providers uh, gaining footholds in places like the United Kingdom, uh, Germany making a decision soon, Canada making a decision soon. Um, they're all over Lat- Latin America. They control Africa as far as those telecommunications networks in much of Southeast Asia uh, leave out Korea and Japan. Um, And so you have that debate going on, which is right on the precipice today. Which way is it going to turn? Are folks going to, you know, uh, see what's actually happening, in my view, with uh, these companies that are essentially arms of the Chinese military and intelligence service? Or are they going to sort of put shade over their eyes and and want to keep that market access open? that is so important to their countries as i believe what happened in in the uk i think the brits didn't want to close the door to europe and to china in the same year uh and that was the tipping point so you have that you have belt and road where you have uh european countries signing on to belt and road uh in the case of italy uh where they're making making headway and i think this does present when you couple Um, what's going on here with the coronavirus with three or four other awfully significant things uh, around the world that uh, it, it can create a compelling narrative.
1: Dana?
0: So we have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the erosion, mostly enforced, uh, self-imposed errors of, of U.S. leadership on the world stage. Here is an interesting example where what the United States does has global ramifications. So the State Department changed its travel advisory for China to level four, do not travel. The other place that it has do not travel is like Iraq, Iraq. And Iran. So this is really serious to Pretty say. Bad. Do not travel. Evacuated all U.S. citizens from Wuhan province. Quarantining um, citizens. U.S. citizens coming back that have touched China or been in China in military bases. This, the United States, the Trump, the Trump administration, in the United States is for sure signaling that it views this as a crisis and that the Chinese government is not handling it well by what it decides to do and that pressures other governments to make the same decisions. So I think internationally the Trump administration sees this as an opportunity, absolutely and they're going to make it really painful for the Chinese.
1: Alright, let's, t- let's talk about uh, how the Trump administration has responded. There's already been some criticism uh, from Obama administration officials. I'm thinking of Ron Klein, who coordinated uh, after the, the West Africa Ebola crisis got out of hand, he was brought in to coordinate the US response and work with the WHO and others to, to contain that virus. And ultimately, he succeeded. Uh, they've, uh, Klein and others have criticized the Trump administration for some personnel decisions, for eliminating certain jobs, for not filling other jobs. What's the what's the fair attack on President Trump at this point Dan and Jody for the way he's postured his administration vis-a-vis global health issues. So,
2: I might actually have something slightly more moderate to say here, which is Uh-oh. I actually think this is a space where we shouldn't be talking so much about fault lines, right? So, there were issues in the Obama administration. That administration got serious about pandemic viruses and investments in global health infrastructure only when the uh, Ebola virus uh, erupted. And to be fair, they managed that crisis, I think, fairly well. Ron Klain was appointed. Once, as they, basically once that, they
1: actually engaged. That's so they let right, to they, go a little too long, arguably, but once they engaged. Right. They and they, they
2: created some infrastructure at the White House and 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 at DHS that was intended to endure, that would address uh, both diagnos- diagnosing and, and carry through on pandemic crises going forward very, very unfortunately that that infrastructure was dismantled under the Trump administration. Uh, But I think that no administration, frankly, to date has really taken this issue very seriously uh, for all of the reasons that we know here in Washington, which is pandemics don't happen very frequently and most presidents can hedge that one probably won't happen on their clock and so investing in that space isn't such an attractive option. I think for the American public and frankly for candidates who are out there campaigning uh, for November ought to take this issue seriously. In fact, if you were to query Americans about where we should be putting foreign aid dollars. I have to think that investing in global health and protecting them from a potentially international pandemic that might kill thousands if not millions of Americans would be at the very top of most Americans' list of things that they think that their government should be doing. So
1: so Dana, this is budget request week. The president is sending up his uh, his budget request uh, today. In fact, we're recording on Monday. You just tossed me the softball. I'm going to make it even even, even higher arc here for you. Uh, There's a 21% cut in the international affairs budget. That's the State Department and foreign assistance. I believe there was a comment from an administration official this morning about how our our foreign aid was going to buy statues in Mozambique, which I'm pretty sure is a mischaracterization of the program. Uh, But, Danny, do you you think that's a vulnerability for the administration? Is that the kind of message they want to be sending now that we're not going to invest in prophylactic measures that could prevent uh, pandemics from getting worse than they are?
0: So, I'm going to add here that apparently the proposed Trump budget also cuts 9% of the CDC's budget, the Center for Disease Control. So, these are the guys that should be dealing with a global pandemic. And I just want to go back to what Jody said about the Trump administration creating the infrastructure to have a whole of government coordinated response, both domestically to protect Americans and also globally. And the Trump administration, it's really, again, it's an unforced error for no reason. This is the fault line got rid of that position at the National Security Council and is now defunding or underfunding across across the U.S. government the different positions and offices and centers that would be part of coordinating this response. In terms of the fault line, I'm just going to say, in general, Americans hate foreign aid. So... If you're a Democratic primary candidate saying we should spend more money on others, I don't actually think that's going to win necessarily more votes for Democrats. If you make it about global health and pre- preventing pandemics, that's a different thing than than cutting part of the foreign affairs budget, which generally is not something most Americans don't don't want to see their taxpayer spent abroad, they'd much prefer to see them spent at home. The irony, again, of the Trump administration's budget is that it's cutting all sorts of domestic spending. That's for another podcast.
1: Andy, let's uh, maybe get a slightly different perspective from you on the fault line here. I would would just, before you answer, though, uh, throw out the fact that for the last three years, the Trump administration has proposed deep cuts in the foreign assistance budget, Congress, even when both houses were controlled by Republicans, has rejected those cuts and, in fact, funded the international affairs budget at about where it was during the Obama administration. So these, well, these budget cuts, while well, I think are, are concerning. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a press release and doesn't seem to have a huge impact on actual budget decisions. But what's your, Andy, what's your sense of administration vulnerability here? Is there any, how are Republicans on the Hill reacting to this situation? What are your thoughts? Which uh,
3: all of those uh, those bills that Congress passed to reinstate that funding, of course, were were signed by the president. So clearly they want to send a signal that uh, it's not their favorite priority for sure, but they're not. Well, it's not a sword they're they're uh, willing to to fall on. Um, As for the National Security Council, the only thing I would point out there is we've seen this is. Largely consistent with how they've restructured the NSC in general, um, which is certainly uh, open for criticism. But I mean, they they moved the cyber coordinator uh, back underneath the National Security Advisor. They moved the Homeland uh, Advisory Committee back underneath the National Security Advisor. They, in a highly underpublicized, in my view, move, uh, took the United Nations ambassador back underneath uh, essentially at the State Department and, and took away the, the cabinet position. So this is consistent with, um, with I think, at least how this White House uh, uh, has structured things, uh,
1: wise or not. All right. Let's flip to Chinese politics. Uh, President Xi came to power in 2012. He's been there for uh, for eight years, of course. He has made changes to the laws in China so that he can serve more than the two five-year terms that have been kind of the traditional term for someone in his position, so opening the door to chairman for life or president for life. He's really consolidated power. He's promoted nationalism, kind of an almost ethnic nationalism uh, in China. He's really uh, put the squeeze on uh, corruption issues as a way to kind of punish his enemies, However, when the, the coronavirus emerges a real real problem, he's been out of out of the line of sight. He's appeared a couple of times. Once was with the WHO Director General, as we mentioned. He also met with uh, the leader of Cambodia, who came in to praise the Chinese. Also came in to praise the Chinese response to the virus. Not a lot of people bought the Cambodian explanation. Uh, he's let the Vice President uh, Lee Wan Chao go out and take uh, actions and make decisions and take credit and take blame for this what's the what can we say about how this crisis is going to impact the future of his rule in china is this is this a real threat to his to his grasp on power right now dana
0: probably depends on how it unfolds and it's too soon to tell so if Lots and lots and lots of more Chinese die and the government doesn't get it under control and they don't demonstrate that they're capable of protecting and treating their own citizens. Then I could see much more serious gaps opening between the government and the people. And then the government will be forced to make some really tough decisions about how they deal with their very upset citizens. Um, And that could be very bad for him. On the other hand, it's sort of like gobsmackingly transparent for him to be absent from the scene at this point in time. It's sort of foreign policy 101, not be associated with the crisis. Uh, so I'm not so surprised by that. But again, I think it's early days in terms of how the Chinese government responds, and, and
2: we'll we'll have to see how much worse it could get. Jody. Right, so I mean, I take your point about not wanting to be affiliated with the coronavirus. At the same time, we're looking at a government and at a and a man, Raji, who has a relatively small circle uh, of people around him. Theoretically, a small circle of trust. Uh, around him, and I, I have to wonder whether or not those people who are in that circle of trust are feeling a little less trusting than they were than were than they were previously. Like it may be a gut response to throw somebody else under the bus, except you have to know that everybody else around you is watching you throw that person under the bus, and that puts at real peril uh, his leadership, particularly when you combine that with the other ongoing crises that the that the country is facing. And probably the biggest one of all is the potential impact on on China's economy. And we're not talking – we talked about it earlier, but we're not talking about short-term impacts. We're talking about potentially long-term impacts and changes in people's financial behavior vis-a-vis China.
1: Andy, what's your your take?
3: I think that's exactly right, the last point in particular. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party, of course – uh, stakes its entire legitimacy on economic growth, and when that 's at seven eight nine percent it 's a lot easier sell to the Chinese population. Uh, and, they, and they clearly know that they're, as we've discussed before, having some trade off of lack of freedom for this um, sort of protected status and uh, state planned economic growth. and when that starts to be disrupted, uh, is, is where they could find trouble. Now, Xi is, is the strongest Chinese leader we've seen since Mao, so I don't see him in any you know, immediate peril. But um, the situation in Hong Kong, um, the, this situation, and most importantly this economic situation where the economic growth for the year could be as low as, as what we've seen in three decades uh, is where they're likely uh, getting the most nervous in Beijing this morning.
1: All right, let's talk about Trump and Xi together Trump has been uh, generally praiseworthy of President Xi in, uh, even before this crisis. He's been praiseworthy of him during the crisis. Uh, he has kind of held the door open to a good, you know, man-to-man relationship with, with the Chinese president. Uh, How is how's that going to impact Xi's future. I noticed that President Trump has also offered $100 million in, in aid to China. China is the second largest economy in the world. A, they've got their own foreign aid program in which they spend billions of dollars a year in their neighboring countries and in Africa and in Latin America. It's a little bit crazy uh, under those circumstances that the U.S. would have to provide assistance to China. What's what's really going on in that relationship between she and trump do is there is Trump trying to undermine she here a little bit is he is he kind of saying is he being a little too praiseworthy in public and then a little too undermining uh, kind of with some of his actions what 's the what 's the play here Well, I think
3: for this case in, in specifically it 's a gesture of goodwill as much as anything. I think you know uh, Trump fully realizes that these two leaders need each other at least in the near term uh, president trump 's uh, clearly his top priority always has been. Aside from uh, the number the volume of tweets on other topics, uh, concern about the the u s economy and, and its growth um, and realizes the biggest potential for negative or positive is our trading relationship with China. so I think he certainly doesn 't want to spook that uh, situation but is doing all the things uh, in other areas whether, whether that 's diplomatic or military or intelligence or um, a number of other uh, areas trade uh, to squeeze China everywhere else, but keep trying to maintain. And you see, his he does this with lots of other foreign leaders, where he does seek at least to maintain this this personal relationship with a view that he can manipulate it. In my view, at, at some time uh, advantageous to him in the U.S. Jody,
2: right? Just a quick comment on the on the hundred million dollar uh, investment. I I know it's not popular to say. And normally, I wouldn't be supportive of providing aid to China, uh, but in this circumstance, it isn't just about China, right? This investment in assistance to counter the coronavirus is really about us too. Yep. And I, 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 think of the investments we can make globally, global health for most of us should be at the top of should be at the top of that list because it has international uh, implications. Affects Chinese, but it affects Americans too. Yeah,
1: I I think that's that's a great point. I but I do think that there's a little part of the President Trump that is using this as a way to show President Xi, hey, you're the junior partner at best here. That while we, I may be very nice to you in public, um, we know who's the number one, and because I have to give you assistance, it's not you. That'll uh, we'll tie a knot in that, and that'll uh, we'll conclude our coronavirus discussion at least for now. Let's go to the final part of the podcast where uh, each one brings up a topic that they're following. It's not necessarily in the front page headlines. Dana, do you want to go first?
0: So sadly not in the front page headlines. The American public paid attention for a very short period of time in late September, early October to what was happening in Syria and the future of the United States and and our um, military presence in Syria. Setting that aside, last week, where the Assad regime in Damascus has increased the pace of its military operations is this province in northwest Syria called Idlib province. Idlib province is a dog's breakfast of Al Qaeda and all of its affiliates, not to mention hundreds of thousands of syrian civilians the assad regime enabled by russia and iranian ground forces has escalated and increased its attacks on idlib to try to rid the province and take back control of this province which is basically in the hands of al-qaeda in syria and its affiliates last week however turkey who has ...created outposts inside Idlib in order to prevent a massive outflow of even more Syrian civilians as refugees into Turkey killed Assad regime soldiers after according to president Erdogan of Turkey Assad regime soldier Assad regime security forces attacked Turkey so one this is the first time to my knowledge that Turkey and the Assad government in Damascus have directly engaged in military action and two it really calls into question Russia and its role in mediating and preventing bloodshed between some of its partners and allies in the Middle East.
1: Would this have happened if we had not changed our support for the Syrian Kurds a few months ago?
0: I don't think so, because our forces are in northeast Syria fighting ISIS and doing something entirely different. We pulled, we being the United States, all of our support out of northwest Syria, Idlib, whether it was economic aid, civil society aid to the innocents that are still there, any of the other programs where we were supporting what we refer to as Syrian opposition forces ended a long time ago. So we've effectively given up this terrain other than limited kinetic strikes when we have high value targets of Al Qaeda people. Um, but again what is so interesting to me is recall Turkey's still our NATO ally for this period in time. This is a this is a point of tremendous tension, Syria, between the United States and Turkey, that's caused Turkey to look to Russia and Moscow rather than Washington and the United States to protect its interests in Syria. And here you have Russia failing Turkey and Turkey turning its weapons on Assad, who is the ally of Russia in the Middle East.
1: It is pretty amazing. Andy, what are you following? Yeah, when you
3: follow that as closely, uh, it does make your head hurt. Uh, One thing I was following last week in the midst of impeachment and the – sort of flubbed uh, Iowa caucus. I'm not sure we still have an accurate count. We, maybe as of this morning we do.
1: I'm pretty sure uh, there's going to be a primary tomorrow in New Hampshire. I think turn, they're still going turn to Turn the, the page. Yep.
3: Um, I, I was actually following the sort of the most significant probably modernization of the U.S. nuclear fleet uh, that we've seen in 30 years where the United States, uh, following its uh, 2018 nuclear posture review, introduced a, a sort of low-grade uh, new nuclear weapon uh carried by submarines with the intent of countering russia it's uh uh so it was sold as a important piece of deterrence i think this was largely lost in the media scrum uh, of the week but but awfully significant uh i understand the the media in washington's desire to focus on president trump's uh Uh, often uh, fluffy uh, and overtly friendly comments uh, with Vladimir Putin. But if you look at some of the policies, they are really quite strong, Uh, not just sanctions, U.S. military modernization, this uh, new nuclear weapon uh, introduced to our arsenal, the closing of consulates in San Francisco and Maryland that were used by uh, the Russian intelligence services. Um, We an action in Syria where we we directly went after uh, some Russian bad dudes uh, there a couple of years ago who were intent on uh, on hitting us and our allies, squeezing Iran, which, of course, is a key Russian ally, Nord Stream 2. We could go on down the line. There's actually more good news than bad in this story, but understandably it gets lost largely in some of the president's rhetoric.
1: Jody.
2: Uh, So I took, with increasing interest, the turning point in Irish politics. Uh, Ireland had an election uh, over the weekend, and Sinn Féin, which is the former political branch of the Irish Republican Army, took 24.5 percent, winning the popular vote uh, in Ireland. What's notable about this is they doubled their support from the prior election in 2016. They were harnessing, largely harnessing domestic concerns about issues like high rents and access to public services, but they also made a centerpiece of their platform, as it always has been, uh, the issue of a united Ireland. Uh, it's unclear whether or not you know if they were able to form a government, and it's not at all clear that they will be able to do that. They won, I think, twenty three percent of the parliamentary seats, thirty seven seats in the one hundred and eighty seat parliament. So it's unclear that they'll be able to form form a party. But if they were uh, if they were able to, it's possible that they could try to put this issue of a United Ireland back on some type of some type of political agenda. Following that idea, post whole referenda found that 57% of the people support that issue of a united Ireland. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean going forward for the Good Friday Accords? Could that be a harbinger for new political violence uh, in Ireland? I think all of these questions are are pending uh, the formation of, of a government. But I think it's a really surprising outcome from a political situation that I think most Americans consider to be it's considered to have been largely settled with the signing of the good, of the Good Friday Accords, and then one last thing less that I feel like I need to mention, uh, just to follow up on our coronavirus conversation, we didn't talk very much about uh, domestic readiness, but it's not clear that we're ready domestically. If you read through some of those transcripts that the CDC is holding you know, is is publishing their Q&A with reporters, it's not at all clear that they understand how this would play out domestically. Uh, State Departments of Health largely own control over how to manage their own citizens, how to quarantine them. And then couple that with the fact that you could not buy a face mask on Amazon if you were willing to pay $1,000 for it right now.
1: And I think the CDC, at least until a few days ago, was saying don't even bother with face masks. Like their recommendation was not to be wearing face masks, yet they're sold out. I mean we're, we're, in, a, we're in a situation where people are going on things they believe, not necessarily on the facts promoted by professionals who know about these things. And we may be underfunding those exact professionals that we're going to need to respond to this crisis. To right. so
2: all of our listeners – should go home and put together their own readiness pack of basic medicines and face masks and gloves because if and when that happens here, you cannot presume that those those materials will be accessible. Go to the to
1: CDC website, see what they recommend, follow their instructions. It's, Absolutely. Not, it's definitely not a bad idea. All right. The issue I'm following is uh, trade. Uh, I think this administration's had kind of a weird record on trade. Some of the stuff seems to have worked out. Uh, Tariffs on China have produced an arguably better trade arrangement than three years ago. We'll see. Uh, I'm not sure the new NAFTA is any different than the old NAFTA. Uh, But interestingly, and something that I do think is positive, is the administration is reaching out to Kenya to do a free trade agreement between the United States and Kenya. Uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya was here last week. He gave a nice speech at the Chamber of Commerce, talked about how important the economic relationship is with the United States. He fully embraces this idea of a free trade agreement between the two countries. We'll see if we can pull it off. I know we're also working on one with post-Brexit United Kingdom. So hopefully our negotiators can do uh, two things at once, uh, walk and chew gum uh, and do the United Kingdom and Kenya at the same time. I think it'd be terrific for U.S. relationship to the continent. Okay, uh, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsigmu.edu. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Jason Jennings for engineering our episode for today. Claude Jennings for editing, Sidney Jolliffe for research, and Grant Haver for production assistance. Before we sign off, we wanted to let you know that we're going to be trying something new starting next week. Our normal panel will still be joining us every other week to debate the latest disagreements on national security and foreign policy. But in the intervening weeks, we will be interviewing a variety of experts from across the political spectrum. Next week, I'll be speaking with Jim Denoy, a visiting fellow at NSI, a former executive in the intelligence community, and the author of a recent recent policy paper on the Arctic. Join us next week for that exciting conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.